listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. distractions. I stood there as Lane prayed and uh, sounded like there was a great concert going on upstairs with the kids. Um, And then the train was passing by just uh, a few hundred feet away. Uh, And then there's all the dissonance in our minds, right? All the things that we walked in here with that are going on in our hearts and lives, going on in our families, going on at our work. And, um, and so uh, we just need to take a few minutes as we open God's Word. Um, and this time uh, should be a very special time as we lift our voices together as the family of God to uh, our Lord and Savior and praise and worship Him um, and let uh, the reality of the gospel uh, stir our hearts uh, and love for Him. But then we open God's Word to this book in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. And the Lord has something for us from the book of Daniel this morning. How do we get to the book of Daniel? What is the book of Daniel all about? And you can go back to Genesis and you get to Genesis chapter 12 and we come across a guy named Abraham and Abraham expands his family throughout the book of Genesis. And before we get to the end of Genesis, Abraham has uh, this family. They end up because of Joseph being taken into captivity, going Um, into the land of Egypt and under Egyptian rule. And so Joseph gets his small family to come over to Egypt. They go to the land of Goshen, and they're there for 400 years uh, with Pharaoh ruling over them, with Joseph second in the kingdom. But you come to Exodus, and there there arose a king that forgot all about Joseph and his influence. But God's people are still there. And after 400 years, they cry out to God, and God is listening, and God hears them. And so Moses comes on the scene And Moses is going to be a deliverer, this guy that has uh, speech issues, this guy that um, has anger issues, um, killed a guy and left him in the, you know, tried to bury him himself. And so Moses spends 80 years in the desert. And Moses says, God, God says, Moses, I'm going to send you over to Egypt. You're going to confront Pharaoh who you know you grew up with. And you're going to say to him, let my people go. And there are going to be these series of plagues. And then God's people are going to be released. That's the exodus that looks forward to the cross of Jesus Christ where there's this animal that is killed. There's this blood over the doorpost. There's this substitute that has died in the place of those who are sinful. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over you. That's looking forward to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we trust him, the judgment of God, the wrath of God doesn't fall on him because it's fallen on his son by God's design. So God lets his people go. They wander around in the wilderness. Finally, they spend those 40 years in the wilderness, and they you come to the book of Joshua, and they're in the land, and you come to the book of Judges, and you see these judges that keep rising and falling, and all of a sudden, Israel says, we want a king. And so a guy named Saul rises to the occasion. Saul wasn't all that great of a guy, and then Samuel anoints David, and David becomes the king, and we're looking at about 1,000 B.C. when David becomes king, somewhere in that area, and Israel rises to uh, this, this massive 
international, worldwide prominence under David's rule. And then David has a son named Solomon. And Solomon is this great king that, again, makes Israel even greater before the world. But when Solomon passes off the scene, his son Rehoboam becomes the king. And Rehoboam says, I'm going to do things differently than my dad. And what happened with Israel at that point is they ended up dividing and they became 10 northern kingdoms and 10 southern kingdoms. And so as you read through, you can read about the history of David, First and Second Samuel, but then you begin to learn about these kings of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. When the kingdom divided, you had Saul, David, Solomon, and then you have this line of a king over the northern kingdom, a king over the southern kingdom in Israel. So there are these two kings that go through their history of several hundred years. As a result of that, God would raise up these prophets to speak to him. So you come to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, the major prophets, and then you have the, the, the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets. And so these guys are speaking either to the northern kingdom, the, the 10 smaller tribes, or to the southern kingdom, the, 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 lar- the two larger tribes. And so Daniel is one of these prophets that speaks to one of these kingdoms to try to deliver God's word to them. What happened was, as a result of God's judgment, they're violating the Sabbath over hundreds of years. They end up finding themselves going into 70 years of captivity. And so uh, Daniel ends up being um, one of the people that goes into the captivity, lives all the way through the captivity, and sees the people leave captivity and go back to the land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And so as we read through Daniel, and we've gone through Daniel, nine chapters of uh, Daniel and coming to chapter 10 now, we've seen a couple of things as we look at the book of Daniel, as Daniel is addressing these issues that are going on in um, Israel after they, again, lived in somewhat of rebellion, were taken into captivity as was predicted, and now they have been set free from that captivity. Just to give you a, a quick recap of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters are biographical. Take in mind, we're looking at six snapshots, five or six snapshots from the life of Daniel that lasted 80 years. A lot more went on in Daniel's life than what we're reading reading about in the first six chapters. Chapter one, we see him enter the land and they're like, hey, give us vegetables, don't give us steak. We see chapter two, there's a vision. And as a result of that vision, Daniel all of a sudden comes on the scene and rises up to a place of prominence. When we come to chapter three, we see this golden image in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we all know that story from the book of Daniel. We come to chapter Chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar has this uh, an, another dream where he thinks he's God, proclaims himself as God. He's humiliated, but then God raises him up after he acknowledges who God is. We come to chapter 5, and there's this handwriting on the wall that Daniel now under uh, uh, another king has to interpret. And then we come to chapter 6, everybody knows about Daniel and the lion's den. These are biographical snapshots from the life of Daniel to, I believe, establish the credibility of Daniel as a prophet. Because starting in chapter 7, Daniel's going to start saying, and some crazy stuff. Daniel's going to start seeing some visions and he's going to start predicting the future. And some of it's going to be uh, abroad. For example, when you come to Daniel chapter 7, you, you, you see um, this vision of four beasts. You come to Daniel chapter 8, you see the ram and the goat. You come to Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel all of a sudden has been reading the book of Jeremiah. And Daniel realizes now that his people are fixing to go back into the land, and he knows that they aren't prepared. He knows that 70 years of captivity has not done anything to change their hearts. And so they're basically going back into the land in the same condition that they came out of the land. And so Daniel begins to confess his sin and the sin of his people so that God would perchance 
restore their hearts so they could back, go back into the land so that the land could be reestablished, so that the temple could be built, so that the worship of God could be reinstituted, so that sacrifices could be made, so that these symbols of ultimate redemption through Christ could continue to go out through this nation, and that's what God intended for them. And so Daniel prays. And then we come to Daniel chapter 10, and Daniel is extremely stirred up. We know from the dates that are given to us in the book that, um, that the, the, the exiles have been released to go back to the land. They've been back in the land for maybe two years, for maybe two years. And so Daniel is extremely concerned. Daniel, again, is praying. We see this repeated pattern in Daniel's life. Daniel prays, Daniel prays, Daniel prays, Daniel prays. Daniel is just a man of prayer. And in Daniel chapter 10, he is praying. And that's where we find ourselves beginning in verse 1. I love the fact that he's giving us very specific dates. He's giving us a very specific time in recorded history. He's giving us geographical locations. You say, why is that important? Because there are people that say the prophecies of Daniel are so accurate that there is no, there's no way that anybody could have, could, have, uh, could have written these prophecies in the 6th century and they come true several hundred years later. So some people will say that Daniel wrote in the 2nd century and after these things occurred. That's not true. Daniel wrote, and he's giving us these dates, these times, these locations, so that we have to say there was a man named Daniel in the 6th century who is writing these prophecies, and they came true with, with uh, um, supernatural accuracy. This is the word of God. Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a, a word was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was great. It was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. That's an overview of what we're going to read now. Please understand, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all related to this one final vision, the, the vision that comes with the greatest detail that Daniel has given in the book of Daniel. Verse 2 begins now an explanation of that overview. In those days, I, Daniel, was... Morning for three weeks, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of, of the great river, that is the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist, his body was like burl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. There was this, it's like there was this great amplification system. And I, Daniel alone, saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Fell flat on his face. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me. And set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have sent to you. And when he had spoken the word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. 
and I have come because of your words. Daniel, I heard your prayer as soon as you uttered it, and I am coming in response to your prayer. Nothing else can be said about that. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kingdom of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So this thing is future. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Here, this, this I believe it's Jesus, is coming to say, I'm fixing to deliver a message to you. And Daniel is saying, I'm so messed up, I can't hear the message, and I can't deliver the message. And this messenger is saying to him, you need to get up on your feet. You need to stand up, and you need to listen, because this message needs to be communicated. Verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, oh, man, greatly loved. Fear not. That's happened twice now. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of the truth. That there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael your prince. And quite frankly, there is none is necessary when you've got Michael the archangel fighting with you. He is a great warrior. What do we see here? Let me just try to break it down for you and then make some brief application this morning. Number one, we see the situation in verse one. The exiles have returned to the land. They've been there for a couple of years. What we know from Ezra is that they have built the altar. They are offering sacrifices on the altar. There is some form of worship going on, but the people in the land, those who are pagan worshipers, are doing everything that they can to stop the worship of God. They're doing everything that they can to stop the building of the temple. So this is what's going on. The exiles have returned to the land. Daniel is still serving in the government. That's why we have this name, Belteshazzar, there, because it is his official governmental name. He's getting these daily security briefings, probably, and he knows what's going on over in uh, the, the Palestine where the people have returned to, and, and what he's getting now is a bad report. And he said, this word is true. This is an accurate revelation. And the things that I'm receiving about what's going on with God's people is very painful. In other words, here they are thinking that they're going back to the land. They've been in captivity for 70 years. They're going back to the land, and everything is going to sort of be like it was when they left Egypt, and everything just kind of went their way, and, and everything was smooth sailing. And when they went in, God blessed them, and God's going to bless us again, and it's going to be like when David was king, and it's going to be like when Solomon was king, and it's going to be like when we were a great nation. It's going to be like when offerings were offered up to God, and God was pleased, and we were the people of God, and that's not happening and so Daniel says, this thing that I'm seeing, this vision is a conflict. The word conflict here in the text means army or um, 
or conflict or hard surface service. Here's what he's saying. The future of God's people is going to be one of great suffering. Don't miss that. He's saying the future of God's people is not going to be one of deliverance, but it's going to be one of perseverance. I think that's important for us to make note of because most of us want to get out of what we're in. I know I do. We don't necessarily want strength to endure it. Most of us want to get out of it, and if God was good, he'd get us out of it. But the text is telling us that God is good and he leaves them in it. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. But that's what the text is telling Daniel. And this is why it is so troubling for him. This word is trustworthy, he's basically saying in the text. So we see the situation in verse 1. Secondly, and it's as clear as day, secondly we see this visitation in verses 2 to 9. This messenger comes and he visits. And there are several things in the text I want to try to point out briefly. Number one, Daniel is mourning. The exiles are in distress. Things are not going well. They are unrepentant. They are unaware. They are unprepared. And Daniel is wondering, are are we even going to be restored as a nation? Is, Is this nation Israel, are these people, God's people, going to make it? The opposition was fierce. You can read in the book of Nehemiah where there were guys that were called out by name, Sanballat, uh, Tobiah. These, these enemies of God were named in the text. And what we have to come to grips with is this, that Satan hates the people of God. Satan hates the worship of God. Satan hates the good news that the sacrifice of animals points to. It points to victory over sin through a coming redeemer. Satan hates that. If he can stop them dead in their tracks, if he can stop them and an altar is sitting there, no temple has been built, the altar is going to sit there until the days of Haggai and Zechariah, some 15 to 20 years later, it's going to sit there and the people that are the people of God just look like some, some makeshift cult. It has no impact on the world. So Daniel is mourning these circumstances and he's he's praying and he's wondering what's going on. You can see again we read it in in verse 12 of chapter 10. Listen to listen to what is is said here by this messenger. Then he said to me, fear not Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. So Daniel prayed and his words were heard. And, and um, there was a response, but the response wasn't immediate. God is working at times when we don't even know or understand it. But Daniel is, is wondering, what's going on, God? What we envisioned isn't happening. Where is your blessing? Aren't we your covenant people? Aren't you our God? Have you forgotten us? Don't you care? Was this 70 years of captivity for nothing? Haven't we paid the price? How much more do you want from us? How much more do we have to be punished? When will something turn out in our favor? At the end of the day, Daniel wanted to see the glory of God returned to the city and the temple and the people. He wanted Israel to accurately represent a holy nation and a royal priesthood. He wanted Israel to be set set apart in the world for God and his 
glory, and he wanted Jerusalem to be a place of authentic worship for the one true God. So Daniel is mourning, and he's not just mourning because his friends are hurting, and he's not just mourning because he is hurting. He's mourning for the reputation of God. He's mourning for the glory of God. He's mourning for the people of God. Let me just say a word about mourning, and we'll move on to Jesus showing up in this text. God responds to us when we respond to sin with mourning. That's what we see in the text here. Daniel is mourning. He's mourning the sin of his people. We saw that in Daniel chapter 9. God responds to us when we respond to sin with mourning, grieving. Secondly, God hears us when we come to him in brokenness and humility. That's borne out in the text. So there is this visitation that is preceded by mourning, but then there is this visitor. Jesus shows up, and it is a Christophany. It is the pre-incarnate Christ. It is Jesus before he robed himself in flesh and walked among men. Now, some would debate that. I'm sure you could find some good um, commentaries, some good scholars that would debate that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it is debatable. That doesn't mean if you disagree with me or I disagree with you that you're a heretic or I'm a heretic. Okay? So don't, so don't go there. You know, it, because your favorite commentary writer doesn't believe it's Jesus and believes it's some angel, and then you want to pick apart the text to say, well, if it was Jesus, why didn't he need Michael's help? Well, if it was Jesus, why do we even need to pray, right? Why do we even need to witness if Jesus can just do it all, and by the way, he can, but the means that God uses to get the gospel out to people is the witness of those who know Jesus Christ. And God in his sovereignty would have you and me to share our faith and God help that soul who doesn't understand the clear teaching of Scripture as we are supposed to go out into the world and proclaim good news. Those who would sit back and fold their hands and say, God's sovereign, I don't have to do anything. Could it be that beneath the sovereign umbrella of a holy God that his intention would be to save people through the witness of those that he saved? And could it be that God in his sovereignty uses the prayers of the saints to do his work and that there are certain things that are going to happen, that are supposed to happen, that, but that will not happen apart from people praying? Could it be that? We need to take that into account. I believe this is Jesus that shows up. Daniel gives us the specific date. It's actually April 23rd, 536 B.C. He gives us the Tigris River, which is about 20 miles from the palace. And he gives us this description, which matches a description of Jesus Christ almost verbatim in Revelation chapter 1, where John the Revelator is seeing this vision of none other than Jesus Christ. So Daniel is mourning, Jesus shows up, and what we're given in the text is the impact of Daniel being in the presence of Jesus Christ. This impact of Daniel being in the presence of this pre-incarnate Christ. And, and I want you to look at the impact. I just, I just put a conglomeration of all the words that are found in the text here. First of all, there were people that didn't even see it, but they felt the impact of it, and they ran. The people that were with Daniel fled. Here's what Daniel said. There was no strength in me. Uh, better, better in the south, we say it like this. I was as weak as water. He was physically sick. It doesn't say it, but Daniel was on his hands and knees. What are you doing when you're on your hands and knees? Throwing up. It made him physically sick. He was as white as a sheet. 
He looked like he had seen a ghost. He said, my color left me. It was impacting his blood pressure and his heart rate. He was frightened to death. He passed out. He couldn't move. He fell on his face. He was trembling. He couldn't speak. He was in pain. He couldn't recover his strength. He couldn't breathe. The presence and glory of God should impact us deeply. Don't miss that. The presence and glory of God should impact us deeply. Legan Duncan said, intimacy with God always leaves a mark. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 was immediately faced with his own sin when he saw God. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. John fell flat on his face when he saw Jesus, when you watch TV and some guy says that Jesus walked up and talked to him while he was shaving, they're lying to you. There, there is nobody in recorded scripture that has seen Jesus that it didn't knock him down and knock him out and scare him to death. And Daniel was scared to death. Many people make claims about God. We say that we know him. We say that we see him. We say that we have, by acclamation, very levels, varying levels of appreciation for him. We say that we love him. We say that we lift him up. But isn't it odd that with all of our terminology and our theology, we rarely experience and maybe never experience anything like what Daniel has experienced, even though we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. Let me just after 42 years of ministry, give you an overview about what intimacy of God doesn't make us. Intimacy with God doesn't make us smart. Intimacy with God doesn't make us arrogant. Intimacy with God doesn't make us angry. Intimacy with God doesn't make us proud. Intimacy with God doesn't make us right. Intimacy with God doesn't make us divisive. Intimacy with God doesn't make us critical. Intimacy with God doesn't make us aloof. Intimacy with God doesn't make us self-righteous. Intimacy with God doesn't make us judgmental. Intimacy with God doesn't make us know-it-all. Intimacy with God doesn't make us more spiritual. Intimacy with God doesn't make us more moral. Intimacy with God doesn't make us better. Intimacy with God doesn't make us contemptuous. In fact... When we really have an accurate view of God, we do not compare ourselves to other people. We don't. It's not in Scripture. I had an encounter with God and now I'm so much better than everybody else. I know God and I'm so much better and I'm so much holier. It doesn't happen like that. When we have an accurate view of God, we don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to God. That only makes sense. And we always end up flat on our face and scared to death. Intimacy with God overwhelms us and it breaks us and it bankrupts us and it leaves us with nothing but God, and if we can stand that for a few minutes, it will leave us longing for more of him and less of everything else. That's what happened to Isaiah. It's interesting that in distress, verse 1, in mourning, verse 2, in shock, verse 8, 
Jesus shows up, watch this, and Jesus did not Jesus juke Daniel. In, in distress, in mourning, and in shock. Daniel flat on his face, and Jesus did not Jesus juke Daniel. Jesus didn't call Daniel out. Jesus didn't rebuke Daniel. Jesus didn't give Daniel any advice. Jesus didn't even quote scripture. He's just like, I'm here. Sorry, been 21 days fighting demons. Fighting the demons of Persia. When he left, I said, I'm going back to fight the demons of Greece. Jesus has backed off and he's looking at hundreds of years of history. And he's looking at Israel that's sandwiched between all of this demonic activity that's going on in Persia. And in the future, all of this demonic activity that's going on in Greece. And Daniel is sitting here worried to death about his people. And Israel is being squeezed between the actions of Satan. And Jesus is concerned about Daniel standing up. Just stand up long enough. He picks him up. Stand up long enough. Let me get this message in you so you can get it to your people. So that you can get it to the world so that you can get it to the people that are in Locust Grove in 2023. He's like, I'm here. I showed up. I've been scrapping with demons for three weeks. I just got away. I'm here to let you know that I heard you. I'm going to answer you. I know that you're mourning. I know that you're in distress. And what I'm about to tell you is only going to make it worse. What I'm about to tell you is only going to make it worse. It's not going to get better. The best thing that I can tell you, Daniel is saying, is that, and this is the good news, that I have a plan. I'm in control. It's only going to get worse. And it's going to be bad for several hundred more years, but it won't stay that way forever. When Jesus comes back, it's all going to be fixed. That's the good news. So this is this, this visitation. The, the third thing we see is is uh, the conversation, verses 10 to 21. Notice what happens. Again, I'm going to give you just this conglomeration of all that's happened in uh, these, these texts so that we can maybe hopefully find some means of application for our heart and life. Number one, um, Daniel said he was touched. He said that in verse 10 and verse 18. He says in verse 16 that his lips were touched. His, his, his speaking, what he was going to communicate, was touched. That same thing happened to Jeremiah in chapter 1 and verse 9 and in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 7. And then he speaks these words to him. He says, Daniel, you, Daniel, you are a man who is greatly loved. He says it twice in verse 11 and 19. Now, here's what we do. 2023 with the residue of the prosperity gospel ruminating in most of our hearts and minds and brains and theology. You are a man greatly loved. I'll tell you what, if you loved me, you'd answer my prayer. If you'd love me, you'd give me what I want. If you love me, you'd give me some relief. If you love me, you would make things better. And this messenger says, I love you, and I will join you in your legitimate and unending distress. I love you and I will join you in your legitimate and unending distress. I will talk with you. I will strengthen you. I will include you in my plans. I will love you and I will invite you to love me. And if nothing changes, that will be enough. And if that isn't enough, then you don't want to know the God of the Bible. He said, I love you. 
and I love you because I love you. I'm going to come be with you right where you are, but I'm not going to get you out of the situation that you're in. That's upside down from what the church has generally taught us. He also says, fear not. He says it in verse 12. He says it in verse 19. He said it to Abraham or Abram in Genesis 15, verse 1. He said it to John in uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 17. Now, you've got to think about what's going on here. When uh, this Christophany shows up, when Jesus shows up, when the holy presence of God shows up, then fear is the obvious response. Debilitating fear is the obvious response. And... uh, I don't know about you, but the reason we run and hide and cover ourselves with fig leaves and the reason that we put on a pose and put on a mask is we really don't want people to see how sinful we are. But when Jesus Christ shows up, you're not hiding from him. And the first reaction, knee-jerk reaction to Jesus Christ showing up is he's showing up. He's perfect. He's holy. I'm sinful. I'm fixing to get judged. But Jesus says... Fear not. Calm down. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here for judgment. I'm here to comfort you. I'm here to assure you. I'm here to assign you. And then he says, the fourth thing that I have in my notes is that I've come as we talk about this conversation. I've come because you have prayed. I am responding to your request This is an act of love on my part toward you. He's saying, I'm responding to your inquiry. I'm here because you summoned me. I'm here to answer your prayer. I'm here because your prayer and God's will are acting in concert with each other. And we need to take from that that prayer is essential and there are things that will not happen without prayer because God has ordained it so. Again, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, we don't have any control of God. We don't have any control of God. But God has ordained it that the prayers of the saints would be a means that he would use to accomplish his purposes. Don't miss that. Prayer is essential. There are things that will not happen without prayer. The prayers of the saints is the means that God uses to accomplish his purposes. So Daniel, in this conversation, says, I need to pull myself together. I need to wake up. I need to stand up. Somebody splash some water in my face. Give give me some Gatorade. Give me a spark. Give me a five-hour energy because I'm just about dead and I need something to get me up, stand me up so that I can hear what's being said, so that I can record it, so that I can communicate it to God's people. One of the strangest things in the text, the fourth thing we see this morning is confrontation. And this is very unique to this passage of Scripture. In fact, um, Andrew Steinman, in uh, his commentary on Daniel, said this. He said, this is the only place in all the Bible where such spiritual warfare between angelic powers and demonic forces who empower people and nations to do their bidding is brought forth so explicitly. I'll be honest with you, this scares me. I don't know what scares you. But the reality of demonic activity scares me. I don't have enough reasoning power to rationalize it away. I'm going to confess that to you right now. 
And I also believe that the demons are much more powerful. They're scheming. They're beautiful. They, come, they're, they're, they look like an angel. Satan is an angel of light. They're deceptive. They can make you think one thing and, and, and be something else. So they're very appealing to us, particularly in our flesh. And so these two verses, verse 13 and verse 20, just kind of scare me. They make me wonder what kind of what kind of things I'm allowing into my life that may be the influence of demonic forces. What kind of things am I listening to? What kind of things am I looking at? What kind of things am I thinking about? What kind of things am I reading? And what, what am I what am I scrolling and taking in? It's no question. <laughs> that other nations have influenced our social media that has impacted generations. Since 2015, since 2015, foreign governments have impacted the social media of the United States of America so that it has reshaped the minds and the hearts on many fronts of those who are United States Americans. So they, they hate this nation. Why are you getting into political stuff? <laughs> if Russia or China can do that, what, what can demons do? What can Satan do? The text points out several things. Number one, there's the prince of the kingdom of Persia. This is an evil, an evil angelic messenger who is demonic, who has Persia under its control. It's a powerful, evil spirit to work through Persia to bring harm to God's people, to prevent God's word from getting to his people. And this is who this messenger, if it's Jesus, says that he is doing battle with, he and Michael, the archangel, the prince of angels, the war angel, the protector of Israel angel. He also mentions the prince of Greece, the same thing, these demonic forces that are operating in, in realms that the eye can't see. And their goal is to disrupt and to destroy and to divide and they are skilled and they are scheming and they never take a break and they're always looking for a way to get in among God's people. And then we see Michael, the archangels, the war angel. We see him mentioned in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 21, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, Jude and verse 9. I think it's interesting in Jude where uh, Daniel in dealing with Satan doesn't rebuke the devil. <laughs> Daniel, the war angel, doesn't rebuke the devil. Be, be weary or wary of rebuking the devil because if Michael, the archangel, would say, I'm not going to rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you, I'm going to leave rebuking Satan up to Jesus let us be careful. Michael's seen again in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. He is the protector of Israel. John Piper said, I will conclude that there are high-ranking demonic powers over various regimes and dominions and governments and realms of the world, and they work to create as much evil and corruption and spiritual darkness as they can. They strive to interrupt Christian missions and ministry as much as they can. Danny Aiken said, angels and demons are real. Angels and demons are at war with each other. Angels and demons are given assignments either to protect or disrupt. 
and our prayers impact the specifics of real warfare. Chuck Swindoll said, believers' prayers are heard immediately by God. Demonic forces can delay answers to prayer. Wrestling, wrestling in prayer can be exhausting work. Persistent prayer can be followed by renewed strength. Overcoming demonic forces is not a once and for all matter. This is what we're seeing here in this text. I've been fighting these demons in Persia. I'm going to move into the future to fight the demons of Greece. It is a never-ending battle. They know that. You can fast forward to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, verse 29. Jesus walks on the scene and a demon cries out, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? It's not your time, Jesus. There's coming a time when they're going to be defeated, but now's not the time. But they know there's a time. But it's not now, and they're running roughshod over the church, the mission of God, the purposes of God, the people of God. Demons will interject their power and influence into the work of God until Jesus comes back. All you have to do is read, again, all that Jesus dealt with in demonic forces. All you have to do is read through the book of Acts, and you see demonic activity everywhere. You see the, 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 the apostles rebuking Satan. All you have to do is go to Ephesians chapter 6, where we're, we're told we're going to constantly be facing the, these demonic, these principalities of powers and rulers of darkness in high places. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's a real battle that's going on in the, the heavenly realm that is impacting us. And he said, we need to stand and having done all to stand because if we enter into this fray, it is going to knock us down if we turn our back on it and we can't. It's interesting that the two greatest weapons for fighting these spiritual battles are the word of God, which is the sword of the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and praying with all prayer. And that's what Daniel is doing. There are realities, and here's what the text would bear out. There are realities outside the scope of what we can see that control and influence our present and visible situation. There are realities outside the scope of what we can see that control and influence our present and visible situation. And this ought to concern us. This ought to give rise to caution. This ought to incite fear because demons are real. They're powerful. They're influential and they're here. Abraham Kuyper said, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. That is the confrontation that's given to us in the text. Finally, verse 21 is the revelation, and we'll get into that next week. But if you, uh, if you look at verse 21, he said, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. What about application? Let me just offer you uh, a few words of application. Number one, faithfulness and easy are not close friends. 
In fact, they're enemies. Faithfulness and easy are not close friends. Folks, Daniel was faithful. Daniel was faithful. Sometimes I think, Lord, and I don't, I, I don't know that I've been faithful. That, that's not for me to decide. But sometimes I think, boy, I tell you what, as I scroll through and I'm looking for a house, I'm thinking, Lord, I've been faithful. And that $1.1 million house, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? I know some of you are like, I can't believe that preacher said that. But we think that way, don't we? We think, man, I've been faithful. I need me a little blessing sprinkled on my faithfulness. Daniel was faithful at this point in his mid-80s probably. But he was always at the center of controversy. He was always risking everything. And where did it get him? It got him into more trouble. It just got worse. The dude can't catch a break. Let me say this about faithfulness, and here's where most of us are on faithfulness. Faithfulness is not a strategy to make life work. Faithfulness is not a strategy to make life work. Here's, here's what we've been told by the church, and I apologize. If I'm faithful, things will go my way. If I'm faithful, I'll have a good marriage. If I'm faithful, my kids will turn out right. If I'm faithful, uh, my finances, there'll never be a problem. People come to us as pastors and they're like, how can God help me make life work for me? How can I make this relationship work? How can I make this circumstance work? How can I use scripture to make my, my life work? As though scripture is some kind of math problem. Let me give you all that we have as pastors and as a church. If you want anything besides or anything more than Jesus, we can't help you. We can't help you. And you may get Jesus, and everything in your life will fall apart. Faithfulness is not a strategy that controls outcome. It is a love relationship with Creator God that is far away from the reality that there is that that it, that is that is clearly bumping us up against the reality that there is no place else to go that satisfies our deep longings apart from Jesus Christ. That's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is a relationship with Almighty God, a love relationship with Almighty God where we recognize in that covenant relationship that it is with Him that our longings are ultimately satisfied as we relate to and love Him and are loved by Him. Secondly, second point of, of application, prayer is crucial to our survival, the health of our soul, and the mission of God. Prayer's tough. It's tough. I'd rather dig a ditch than pray. I'd rather wash the car than pray. I'd rather vacuum the floor than pray. I'd rather eat spinach than pray, and I don't like spinach. Prayer's tough, folks. If, if you're struggling with prayer, uh, you're probably in good company. 
Prayer is tough. It's unnatural. People think you've lost your mind when you're talking to somebody that's not there. I talk to myself a lot. My wife wants to know who I'm talking to. And I didn't want to tell her who I was talking to or what I was saying to them. Right? Prayer is difficult, but prayer is crucial to our survival and to the health of our soul and to the mission of God. There are things that will not happen without prayer. There are things that need to happen that are waiting on our prayer. Don't let that mess you up. There are demonic forces currently engaged to thwart the prayers of the saints. Our prayer to God is absolutely necessary for our spiritual survival. And Satan will do all that he can to discourage and stop us from praying. Thirdly, spiritual warfare is real. It is present and it's dangerous. Spiritual warfare is real, it's present, and it's dangerous. And I would just challenge you after all that we've looked at relative to that in the brief time that we've had together this morning, make sure that you're on the right side of it. That's the thing that, that's the thing that kind of scares my own interior world. Is I'm always on the right side of it, and everybody else is always on the wrong side of it. Right? I'm always right. Everybody else is wrong. You think? You think? I think we do think. I don't think that's true. You, 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 think, you think Satan could trip me up? You think he could fool me? Sure he could. You think he's trying to weasel his way into my life? Sure he is. And I would, just, I would just challenge us to examine our hearts because everybody that we dis disagree with doesn't mean that they're demon-possessed and we're not. Make sure that you're on the right side of it. You may be entangled in a dark web of spiritual influence or leading a charge for the kingdom of darkness, darkness right here and right now in Locust Grove in 2023. The demons of Locust Grove might have you right where they want you this morning. Don't underestimate their power and influence in your life or in God's kingdom. Don't underestimate it. Fourthly, what is happening right now is much bigger than we can imagine. What is happening right now is much bigger than we can imagine. Life is not about our Savior. Life is not about a Savior who solves our problems, but about a King who is sovereign over principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places, and He is sovereign over human history. Jesus Christ is sovereign over human history. Why? Because He rose from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated demonic forces. He is alive. He succeeded where Adam failed. And he could stand up in Matthew 28 and say, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And his greatest concern is not whether things go my way or that I get what I want or what I think I deserve. His concern is my love for him. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your 
heart, mind, soul, and strength. What you reckon Jesus is concerned about? His greatest concern is my love for him and my submission to his lordship. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think he's concerned about a humble heart that cries out for his kingdom, that cries out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And that might mean that I suffer, and that might mean that I'm persecuted, and that might mean that I die. And I really don't want any of that. But on the last day, it'll be okay. That's the message of Daniel chapter 10. As we come to the table this morning to take some grape juice and some bread, there, there's nothing special about them. I think they came from Ingalls. They didn't drop down out of heaven. They are merely symbols. They're symbols of a greater reality. They are symbols of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are symbols that look back to Good Friday when his body was beaten and his blood was poured out and he died there. The, the, the weight of our sin was put on him and the wrath of God was poured out on him and he suffered and he bled and he died and when he died, our sin debt was paid. And so we look back to the agony of Good Friday so that we, look, we can look forward to the resurrection and Daniel is going to end in Daniel chapter 12 with the message of the resurrection. That is the good news. And so as you come this morning... Let, let this table, let these elements, let this bread and this juice that we bought at Ingalls bring you face to face with the reality of the price that was paid for your sin, with the reality of one who loves you so much that he demonstrates it by dying for you and that he loves us so much that he wants to see us again. And he's coming back. And we're going to be so overjoyed. And he's going to be so overjoyed. There's going to be a great celebration. And this should be at the center of our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what's going on around us, this should be at the center. And I invite you this morning to recalibrate as you come and as you remember the Lord. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to call upon his name. I invite you to confess your sin. I invite you to rest in what he's done. He will come in and give you life, bring you into the family, have a place reserved in heaven for you, and you can come and join the party with us. Father, we thank you this morning for this um, sobering, jarring message and I pray that our, our heart attitude would, would not 
would not take us back to our childhood songs that would believe that if Satan doesn't like something, he's going to sit on attack. He is not so trivial. He is so very powerful. But Lord, we're not here to praise him this morning. We're here to praise you. We're here to lift you up. We're here to surrender our lives to you. We're here to cry out as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come. Thou will be done. In Locust Grove. As it is in heaven. We're here to cry out and say, it's not my kingdom. It's not my power. It's not my glory. We're here to make that drastic, that drastic life-transforming shift that says, thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory. Forever, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday. Until Jesus comes back. Awaken us to the reality that while things may not be easy between now and the time that you come back, that your presence in us can give us the peace of God that passes understanding. No matter the depth of our agony, no matter the depth of our pain, because you are alive, you have defeated sin, and you are coming back. And I pray that our hearts would long for that this morning. In Jesus' name.